My name is Frank. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'm first going to give you the dates. I came into OA in August of 1979, about the end of the month. I don't know the exact day. It was a Wednesday. And um, so I'm coming up on 39 years in coming to OA. And I had an initial period of nine years of abstinence. And then I had a long 18 years of relapse and recovery, relapse and recovery. And thank God it wasn't all relapse because I'd be dead right now if it was all relapse. And I'll get into that why. But, you know, I'd have like six months relapse, six months recovery, six months relapse, six months recovery, back and forth. And so the weight went up and up and up because I, I gained more weight in the relapses than I lost in the recovery periods. And then currently I have 12 years of abstinence right now. Now, I'll, I'll talk about the weights, um, My just the, the, the main numbers. My top weight before I came into OA was 430 pounds. My weight when I walked in the door was 380 pounds. In the first year in the program, I lost 180 pounds and got down to my goal weight of 200 pounds. I Then during that relapse period, I got to a higher top weight of 460 pounds during that relapse and recovery period. And 12 years ago, when I started my current abstinence, I was at 400 pounds. Now, I've gotten as low as 210 pounds about uh, two years into this abstinence. And currently, I'm in my 230s, up and down a few pounds. And I um, that is not from... Uh, breaking my abstinence, it's basically from just eating a little bit too much over a long period of time. I, I worked it out. It's like 20 calories per day over 10 years would give me that amount of weight gain. So um, I do consider myself abstinent. So um, I would like to be in the in the 210s, and I'm currently in the 230s. So five, 25, 20 pounds is what I would like to lose from here on. All right. So now I'm going to talk more about the food. The very first time that I had any idea that I might have a food or a weight problem was in eighth grade. I'm, I'm the oldest of 10. It's a large Catholic family. And um, in seventh grade there, I was reaching for a second helping of the mashed potatoes to put on my plate. And my dad said something like, you know, if you stay at this weight when you grow taller, you'll be fine. And I had no idea that I wasn't fine at that point. You know, I didn't realize that I was fat. I thought I was just okay. I was fine. So that was the very first indication, and that, was, that kind of struck me odd. What, what's he talking about? Although I then found out in eighth grade when, unfortunately, the boys called me hippo, and they came up and grabbed my breasts like they were women's tits on the playground, and, and I hated that. I really, really hated that. And I hoped it wouldn't carry through into high school, and it, luckily it didn't. I went, I went to a high school, and uh, that didn't follow me there. But, you know, all during high school and grade school there, I was maybe 30 pounds overweight. That was probably it. I don't think it was any more than that. And um, then I went away to college. I went away to a college back on the East Coast. And um, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then I went to the East Coast. And they had unlimited seconds in the dorm there. And I put on about 50 pounds in that freshman year of having those unlimited seconds. And, um, and, and I am just a quantity eater is the main bottom line. It's not... I don't go for any particular food group or anything like that. It's just quantity of eating. And I probably left the undergraduate school at around 300 pounds, and I came out to California to go to Stanford for graduate school. And it was in graduate school there that I got to my top weight of 430 pounds in graduate school. Now, compulsive reading is my main disease. There's no question about that. But in graduate school, I was so miserable from my weight that I got into alcohol and weed addictively. I mean, I was smoking um, joints 
you know, morning, noon, and night. And, and this was back when they weren't very powerful. They were, you know, you had to roll a big fat joint of leaves and stems to, get, to feel a little bit of a high. But I was also drinking. And uh, my, my, I, I was a poor graduate student, so I worked out the cheapest way of getting an ounce of alcohol was to buy this Old English 800 beer. I don't know if you guys ever tasted it. Tastes awful, but if you drink enough of it, you don't notice the bad taste. And I used to drink a six-pack of Old English 800 16-ounce cans in a night, and that would put me out. I mean, I'd, be, I'd fall asleep. I'd fall asleep by means pass out. So that's my alcohol and, and weed use. Now, this is a food program, cause, and, I, and I really am a compulsive reader primarily. So as you can imagine, I wasn't doing very well in graduate school, you know, with all that weed and alcohol and, and the weight and so miserable and, you know, not really applying myself. And it was clear I, I, oh, I, was clear I, I wasn't going to be able to continue in physics. I was getting a, a, a graduate degree in physics. So I decided I needed to switch to software engineering, an engineering school instead of, of uh, call it a physics um, thing. So I managed to, I knew that I would have a hard time getting a job at 430 pounds, so I tried to lose some weight to go out and find a job. And that's how I got down to about 380 pounds. And, and I got down to there, and that was the best I could do. And I, I did get a, a nice job, and, and, and everything was great. Now, like I said, I, quantity eating was my, was my thing. I just you know ate large quantities of whatever I ate. I would make a tray of lasagna, for example. That would be like four meals, right, something like that, cut it in fourths, and it would be gone in one night. I just take my one one portion, and then I go back and get a second, and then I get a third, and then I get a fourth, and it's gone. And you know, I'd stop at multiple fast food joints if I was going anywhere. I'd, I'd you know order uh, a, a max of whatever it is, and then I'd go to another fast food joint and order a max of whatever it is. So it was quantity eating. Now, as I said, I was raised Catholic, and I got into physics in high school. I wanted to become a physicist, and. Um, with all my, you know, with all the science that I was learning and everything there, I went and looked at all the proofs that God exists, and I could prove that they were wrong. They, you know, they made a, they hit, they made a hidden assumption that God exists in, in their proofs. So they, they were invalid. In fact, I could come up with a scientific proof that proved that God didn't exist. So I basically converted to atheism in high school. I was an atheist, absolute atheist, and I, I pretended to go to church because my parents still expected me to go to church. But I would typically drive the car and go get some fast food, and then come back and hope they didn't ask me about the sermon. That's how I would would do my Sunday morning. So I, so so I was an absolute atheist, and I came into the program, and I did get a higher power in the program, and I'll be talking about that a lot, a lot later. But I have to tell you, I still consider myself to be a spiritual atheist. That's what I would call myself today. So I really do try to do spiritual program and, and work the 12-step program as a spiritual program. But I say that I'm an atheist because I don't believe in a God that's outside of me, a God that's up there that created the earth and the heavens, and a God that's going to judge me. And all the stuff that I learned in Catholic school, I do not believe in that kind of a God. And so that's the way in which I say that I'm an atheist still. And I'll tell you more about my higher power. So I needed to hit a hard bottom to come to a program that talked about, about God. And um, and the hard problem, the hard bottom that I had to hit was that it wasn't just the food, and it wasn't just this alcohol, and also the um, the marijuana. You know, I, I I qualify for other programs like you know porn and things like that too, so I could qualify for other programs. I was into a lot of bad stuff, 
But it wasn't that was the bottom. The bottom came when I became friends with this woman at work. And this is when I was at 380 pounds. I became friends with this woman at work. And then after a few months of being friends and smoking dope together, we became more than friends. And then after a month or two, she wanted to end it and go back to just being friends. And that was the bottom I had to hit to come to a program that talked about God. So I was, you know, desperate because this is the only woman in the world for me, you know, no one else that will ever love me, especially at 380 pounds. And, you know, there, this was the only chance I had, basically. So I, I finally uh, called around for help. I called the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. I was living in Palo Alto up there. And I called the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, and they said, oh, we had a therapist come in and talk about weight loss just last week. So they gave me the, the, the name and number of the therapist, and I called the therapist, and he said he would take me on as a client, but that I had to go to Overeaters Anonymous meetings simultaneously. Now, I didn't know anything about Overeaters Anonymous, and thank God there was no internet then, because if I had looked it up and seen it was a spiritual program, I wouldn't be here today. But I, I looked in the phone book and found Overeaters Anonymous. I called the number. They, they told me where there was a meeting that I could go to, and so I went to this meeting on noon at Wednesday in the, in the, in the, on the Stanford campus. So I went to this meeting, and it was a very small meeting, like three people plus me. And so they let me cross-talk at the meeting, and I asked them, how can an atheist work this program? Because I heard it was God when I got there. Oh, my gosh, you know. I just about left, but luckily I stayed. And they said, well, you don't need to believe in a traditional higher power. It can be anything you want. You can use the group as the higher power and, um, you know, whatever. They, they tried to convince me that I didn't need to believe in a traditional higher power. And somebody at that meeting loaned me the AA Big Book, and they said, read the chapter We Agnostics. That might be helpful for you. So I left that meeting skeptical, and I went home, and I read that chapter, and then I was convinced this program was not for me because the only message I got out of that chapter was, if you stick with us, we'll convert you. And I didn't want to be converted. You know, there was no, no way I wanted to be converted. So if I had been given the book as a gift, I probably wouldn't be here today. But I had to go back to that same meeting a week later to return the book that they loaned me. And I went back to that meeting a week later. And I think the, the, the lady that loaned it to me wasn't even there that, sec that second time. But I had another little dose of, pain, dose of pain of this woman rejecting me in the week between the two meetings. And so I was a little more willing to listen to them when they said that uh, you didn't need to believe in a, a traditional higher power. So I ended up going to my third OA meeting the same day, the same day that I went to the second meeting. My, the third, these were both at noon on Wednesday, and I went to a Wednesday night meeting down in San Jose that same day of the second meeting. And there I got the hope that I needed. This was a much bigger meeting, something like 40 people, something like that at that time. This is you know, 1979 when OA was big and growing bigger. And um, a man stood up there, and he was a thin man. You know, he was a thin-looking man. And he talked about having lost over 100 pounds and kept it off for years. And, you know, that's like winning the jackpot. You know, people who lose weight generally gain it back. And, you know, when I came into the program, I wasn't looking to get thin. I was morbidly obese, and I was looking to maybe get down to just being obese. You know, I might be able to get a few more girlfriends just at obese instead of at morbidly obese. So that's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking to get all the way to thin. So, um, so I, I did go. I did go to the program, and I did get a food sponsor. I didn't get a step sponsor because the steps had the word God in them. So I got a food sponsor, and I called in my food and talked to my food sponsor about my food. 
and my food plan was to count calories. And the um, and since I wanted to drink beer also, I I decided to account for the calories of one can of beer. So I was going to have one can of beer with my dinner, and that was my plan. And it never happened to be one beer. One beer. It would be the whole six pack because I had to buy a six pack to get the one can right. And then I drank the whole six pack, and then had to buy another six pack the next day. So I kept binging on beer essentially during my first few weeks in the program. And so after after that period of time, I got the the bright idea. Oh, I have to go to AA. So I did go to an AA meeting, and from the the time that I went to that first AA meeting to now, I have not had a drink of beer. So I've been clean. I've been sober from that point of view. Um, since that, that meeting, which was a few weeks after I got into OA, so that would have been September, sometime in September of 1979. Now, uh, marijuana didn't have any calories, and I was way past the point of getting the munchies from marijuana because I had been using it chronically for so many years, it didn't give me the munchies anymore. So I continued to smoke weed continuously. So for about the next six months, I went to OA meetings and AA meetings stoned on weed. This is somebody who didn't quite get the message of what AA was about, for example. So, um, but I did that for about six months. And then I, I, I had, it turned out that I had a small, uh, well, a tumor, not a tumor. Yeah, it was a tumor. It was a tumor on my thyroid, but it turned out to be a benign tumor. It wasn't, it wasn't cancerous. And um, I noticed it because I kept getting a sore throat that wouldn't go away, and the doctor finally sent me to a endocrine. Uh, endocrinologist and they could feel that there was a, a tumor there and so they did studies. So they wanted to do surgery to take out the tumor. Now from all my chronic weed smoking, I would get bronchitis about twice a year and you know be coughing, coughing for a couple of months from the bronchitis from all that weed smoking. So I decided that it would be good to stop smoking weed for a week before surgery, give my lungs a chance to clear out so I wouldn't be coughing my head off at, right after surgery or anything like that. So that, that was my plan. And then I decided, well, six days would be enough. Oh, five days will be enough. Four days will be enough. Three days will be enough. The night before surgery was my last joint. So I went into the surgery the next day, and I had to tell the anesthesiologist, oh, I just smoked some weed last night. And I said, okay, well, thanks for telling me. And, uh, and I, they went ahead with the surgery. Now, this is back in, in 1980. This is like um, February of 1980, late January of 1980. So um, you actually stayed in the hospital for three days after this kind of surgery. I think you would be out in one day today, but it was three days at that time. So I had three days of clean and sober from being in the hospital, and that's when I started my sobriety um, from both weed and alcohol. So I haven't had any mind-altering drug of those kinds um, since 19, well, 38 years, 38 years clean and sober. So... Um, so that's, that's the end of my alcohol story. I'm not going to tell you anything more about that because there's nothing more to tell. I haven't had really any desire to drink or, or use weed or anything like that since then. Now, I, I, I went to OA meetings, and I, um, you know, I was calling my food sponsor, and I was losing rapid weight. See, I, I, it was a great gift that I got to OA before I had that surgery because I actually lost almost 100 pounds before I had the surgery. So I'm sure that it was a, I had much better prognosis from having the surgery, having lost about 100 pounds, so I was probably in my upper 200s, 280, 290, when I had the surgery. So, um, actually it might have been 80 pounds, but it was a lot of weight, I lost a lot of weight. 
And, you know, I still didn't have a step sponsor. I, didn't, I wasn't doing any spiritual part of the program. I was kind of on a diet is what it was. I was on a diet with, with group support, you know, because I went to the meetings. And if I went to the meetings, I got support. And so I was kind of using the meetings as my higher power because if I went to meetings, I got, you know, enthusiastic and I could stick to the food plan and lose some more weight and come back and report my weight loss. And they would be all, you know, congratulations, Frank, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So... Um, what happened, and, and like I said, I was counting calories as part of my, my food plan because I was a physicist. I knew the law of conservation of energy, and that's what was required to lose weight, is to eat less calories than my body needed, and that's how I would do it. Now, what happened is about uh, six months into the program, this guy came up to me and volunteered to be my sponsor. Now, he had been cut out of the same mold that I had been cut out of. He had lost over 100 pounds and kept it off for years, he had been an alcoholic and a compulsive overeater. He was an atheist when he came into the program. So, you know, he had cut out, been cut out of the same mold that I had been cut out of, and he volunteered to be my sponsor. So I had a sponsor, a step sponsor. And um, so we worked the first step, fine, I'm powerless over food. There's no question about that. And then you get to the second and third steps. And what am I going to do there? You know, I, what he, what, and what, he was brilliant because what he suggested was, First of all, give up the debate. You know, my little proof that God doesn't exist, what good does that proof do me in my life today? If I could prove that God doesn't exist to everyone's satisfaction here, is that going to help me at all? No, that's not going to help me at all. Whereas, if I could come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, what good would that do to my life? Well, being restored to sanity with the food would be a good thing. So that was giving up the debate was the first thing. So setting aside my proof that God didn't exist. And then he got me to act as if. And he got me to just say a prayer, even though I didn't think there was any God that I was praying to. I was just praying into a black void, you know, and there it couldn't possibly have any positive effect. And to my horror and disgust, it worked. Because whenever I said the serenity prayer, I usually got serenity, which is usually what I needed because I was trying to change something I couldn't change, like another person, place, or thing. There, I was trying to change something that I wasn't... wasn't going to be able to change. And if I said the serenity prayer, I got some serenity. So that gave me the, the um, that experiment gave me the willingness to go ahead and, and uh, try try acting as if some more and doing more prayers. And so I could get over that, that second step. I could come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I had the experience that it did help to pray. So that's how I came to believe. And then I don't know how, you know, turning my will and my life over to this nebulous thing that I don't know anything about it was a little bit harder. I couldn't really use the group as the higher power at that point because how do I turn my will and my life over to the care of the group? That's not going to help. So the best I came up with at that point in time was I just called it the higher self. It's, it's some part of my brain that's not Frank. So the Frank that's talking to you right now that's sitting here in this chair, that's the Frank that's powerless over food, whose life is unmanageable, and that's the Frank who needs to turn his will and his life over to the care of his higher self. And if you look at both the OA literature and the AA literature, and I'll be talking about this when I go through the steps, a lot of them talk about intuition as being the, the conduit for hearing God's voice for us, God's will for us. Is you, know, you, you pray and you ask in a meditation, and if you get an intuitive thought, that's, that was God that put that thought into your head. So I basically turned intuition into my higher power. So that was my higher, my higher self is what I, what I called it. So um, 
The, main, the most important thing I need to know about my higher self that is not Frank. That's the Frank that's sitting here right now. So now, you know, I was counting calories and everything, but I was still a quantity eater. And cantaloupes have very low calories. You know, they don't have very many calories. And so I was eating at least one cantaloupe a day and sometimes two cantaloupes a day until someone pointed out that my skin was turning orange. Just to show you how much cantaloupes I was eating. You know, that's, that's not normal. So when they pointed that out. Are you saying cantaloupe? Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe. Yeah, I'm sorry. Cantaloupe, but cantaloupe. So um, that's why my skin was turning orange, because of the orange in the cantaloupe. So I just wanted to point out that I can still be compulsive about food, even though I was abstinent in counting calories. So like I said, I started out counting calories. And for that first year, that first period of abstinence that was about nine, nine years long, it gradually, over that period of time, it morphed into kind of moderate mealing. That's what I would do. I, would, I wouldn't be so rigorous about weighing and measuring and recording the calories. For the first few years, I recorded the calories very religiously. I still have the notebooks recording the food item, how many calories, and the total for the day, things like that. Now, I, my first sponsor moved away. He moved back east. And then I got a second sponsor. And I went through the steps, I think, probably twice in that first nine-year period there with my second sponsor. I went through one more time. But then he moved down to L.A. So I happened to be between sponsors at this point in time. And I was also very active in the program. I, first of all, having lost 180 pounds, I was asked to speak at a lot of meetings. I was, the, I was a keynote speaker at the Region 2 convention when it was in San Jose one of those years. Um, I, you know, I went to retreats and conventions. I was um, active in the intergroup. In fact, I, at that point in time, I was the chairperson of the intergroup. And I was also a World Service Business Conference delegate. So I went to the World Service Business Convention every year for like four years in a row at that point in time. And I knew the members of the boards of, board of, of trustees of Overage Anonymous. I mean, I, I was in hot tubs with the board of trustees of Overage Anonymous at, at our convention. So um, as you can hear, my ego was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It, and I was basically coasting on, on the program there. I wasn't really working the program. I wasn't really trying to find a higher power. I wasn't really trying to turn my will and life over the care of the higher power. I wasn't doing prayer and meditation. It was kind of a diet and calories club and, and coasting on my laurels at that point in time. And since I was doing moderate meals, my, my, my rule at the time when I go to a buffet is that I could have one plate at the buffet. Now, it could be close to avalanching off the sides of the plate, but I, you know, I, but I, I came good at getting the angle just right so that it wouldn't fall off the plate, and I could eat that, and that would be my abstinent meal. And then I, uh, what happened is one time I went to a buffet, and I had one plate, and then I went back and got a small second plate, and then I went back and got a small third plate. They weren't three avalanches, one avalanche and two small plates, but three doesn't equal one. So I broke my abstinence, but I was in between sponsors, and I couldn't tell anybody that I broke my abstinence because all of these service positions that I had had abstinence requirements. And this was about two months before the World Service Business Conference that year, and I wanted to go to the World Service Business Conference. I had a lot of fun going there. And um, so I didn't tell anybody about that first binge. And then a week or two later, there was a second binge, and then there was another binge. And, you know, and I, I, I gained some obvious amount of weight. I don't know how long it took me, but I gained some obvious amount of weight. And I had to admit that I was no longer abstinent. So I gave up my service positions. And that was the beginning of my nine years of, of, uh, 
uh, 19 years, eight, 18 years of relapse recovery, relapse recovery. And, um, you know, at first the, the weight gains weren't very much, and then when I would get, get some recovery again, it would go back down again. But the problem was it went up higher in the relapse periods and, and not as low during the recovery periods. And that's how I got up to my top weight of four. Oh, my pictures, I'll pass them around tomorrow. I think I have them in, I hope I have them in my bag. I do have them in my bag. I meant to bring them here tonight. So I'll, I'll show you the pictures, you can see that. So that's how I got to um, into the relapse and recovery periods. And I, so I wasn't working the spiritual program before the program, before my relapse periods. And now in the past 12 years, I am really, really trying to work the spiritual part of this program. I'm really trying to do the prayer and meditation and in fact, I tried going back to the World Service Business Conference um, for two, con two conferences, and it didn't work. I discovered that I wasn't spiritual enough to go to World Service Business Conference. I was there the year when they put the um, plan of action in, and it was actually brought to the conference as a plan of motion. And I was vehemently opposed to doing a plan of motion because that's exercise, that's an outside issue. It doesn't have anything to do with working the programs. Where does it say a plan of motion in the steps? You know, it was, I was arguing against it vociferously. They changed it from a plan of motion to a plan of action, but I knew they were really talking about exercise. And, you know, I had actually made it a point of losing from, at, you know, at that time I was around 200, close to 200. I might, maybe not, might have not have been at my lowest weight, but I was close to 200 pounds. And I'd lost 200 pounds there from 400 pounds when I started this abstinence to that point without doing a lick of exercise. I never once went to exercise. So when I, when I got so upset at the World Service Business Conference and doing that, I realized that I'm not spiritual enough to do the World Service Business Conference. So I haven't been back at that level of service since then. In fact, I haven't gone back to the intergroup even since then. My service level needs to be at the meeting level right now, meeting level and being a, being a sponsor. That's, the, that's how I need to do service in this program. Maybe eventually I'll be spiritual enough to be able to go to World Service Business Conference without getting upset. And then the other, the other uh, ironic thing about that is about two months after I came back from that World Service Business Conference, I joined a gym, and I've been exercising regularly since then. So I do have a plan of motion. Um, so... What did I do wrong in the in that relapse and recovery period? Well, I, I'm convinced that I wasn't really working the first step. The you know admitting that I'm powerless over food. What I did instead was I said to myself, "Okay, I'm going to start tomorrow," and that means I got to get all of my binge foods and you know quantities and just you know binge out today, and then I'll start tomorrow, and then that'll be okay. That'll be getting my abstinence and whatever. If I'm thinking that I have the ability to binge today and to stop tomorrow, that's not taking the first step. That's thinking that I have power over the food. So it was, it was you know, 12, 19 year, or 18 years of basically most of the time thinking that I had power over the food. So I wasn't, a, well, I wasn't taking the first step. And, you know, during that time there, I tried to go back to the counting calories, the thing that worked the first time, but it never worked again. I tried counting calories and it didn't work. So I was doing moderate mealing. I was trying other kinds of things, you know, whatever. And um, nothing worked for a long term. I mean, so things would work for uh, a few weeks or a few months, something like that. That's why I was re alternating relapse and recovery. The other thing is I used to go to conventions and retreats and, you know, all kinds of things like that 
during this, this period here, I didn't go to any conventions. I didn't go to any retreats. I basically just went to kind of at most one meeting a week, my, my home meeting on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock in San Jose. I went to that meeting, and that's basically all I did was go, just go to that meeting. And, and during the relapse periods, I didn't go as often. I might have gone every, once every two weeks. During the recovery periods, maybe I went to two meetings a week during the recovery periods. So there's definitely a correlation between going to meetings and recovery. For me, meetings are an essential part of my recovery. And I'll get into that later when I get back to, to um, my current abstinence. So I was lucky I, in software engineering. I joined a company that was successful enough that I could retire young at the age of 51 in the year 2000. And I was going to work this program on retirement, and I was going to lose the weight and you know get abstinent and all that. And it took until 2006. So I had six more years of you know, relapse and recovery back and forth. And most of that time, I was probably in the range of around 350 to 400 was my, my main range that I was in during that whole 12-year period, 18-year period. See, I keep trying to minimize it. Um, I mean, I did get to 460 at one point, but then I would you know, be in the 430s and then down to 400. So I'd kind of lose weight down to get down to 350, and then I'd binge and get back up to 400. Then I get disgusted at that and lose weight, get back down to 350 and 400. So that was kind of the range that I mostly stayed in, 350 to 400. So, um, so I was going to retire and, and work this program. And my abstinence birthday is June 26th of 2006. And what's special about that day is that it's five days before the Region 2 convention in, in, Sac in, in uh, Oakland. So like I said, I never went to conventions and retreats during this whole relapse period. At that point, I decided I would, I would try out a convention. And it happened to be in Oakland that year, which is close to where I was. So I asked my wife, and she said, OK. So I made the, I made the reservation. And the Monday before the retreat, before, I, I decided it would, be, it would be a good idea to be abstinent before I went to the convention. So I started on the Monday before the convention, right? Monday's the day you start retreat, any, any diet that you're on, right? And I um, went to a meeting a day before I went to the convention. So I went to five meetings in five days there. I did go to more meetings since I retired. Uh, that's one thing I did that, that did help. But I was still at 400 pounds there in 2006. So I must have just had one of my relapses. But I went to the convention, and I saw old friends of mine that, used to, that I used to see when I used to go to conventions, and they were still going. I, had, I was the one to stop going. So I saw them. I went to a whole bunch of meetings there at the convention. I got a lot of recovery from the convention. And so I decided to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And being, being retired, I could do that pretty easily. And, and then that was working so well that I actually kept up about a meeting a day for about three years. So I did three years of a meeting a day. Now, there were days where I missed the meeting on a given day because of vacations or whatever, but then I'd make it up by doing two meetings on another day. So my, my long-term average was more than one meeting a day. So, um, and the other thing is, my food plan, my initial food plan there in this abstinence was counting calories again. It worked again, but it was what, I had somehow made a surrender. I had somehow made the surrender that I was powerless over food and that I couldn't control it myself anymore. So I surrendered to the program and, um, and started the food plan of, of counting calories. Now, over the 12 years since I started, I started counting calories, and then it got you know, a little sloppier at counting calories, and then it was moderate meals. And I basically still do moderate meals. 
But there's a couple of other things that I have added to my, my food plan. One is that I, there's going to be no more starting over. Because starting over is what I was doing all the time during that relapse. You know, I'm going to binge, 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 and I'll start over, start over tomorrow. That saying that I'm going to start over tomorrow is saying, okay, eat everything you want the rest of today. So if I had a meal where I had more food than I really wanted to have at that meal, that doesn't become the excuse for me to then blow it for the rest of the day and I'll start over tomorrow. So, you know, I just accept the fact that I had more food at that meal than I wanted to and, you know, and just go on with the day and still try to work the program and still try to be absent the rest of the day. So I added the no starting over. And then recently, like in the last uh, year, I finally decided I needed to say no free food. And I'm talking about free food, for example, at Trader Joe's and, and uh, Whole Foods. And I'm not talking about going and getting nuts out of the nuts bin. That's called stealing, in my opinion. But, so I didn't do that. But I only took free food that they were actually putting out for me to, to take. For example, at the olive bar, they gave toothpicks for you to try the olives. So I tried a half a dozen olives every time I was at Whole Foods. Um, so, but I was getting compulsive about it. At Trader Joe's, I was figure, making routes around the store so I could keep, keep coming back to the sample station and get another sample. You know, I'd make several routes around there to get multiple samples. And I knew where all the, the possible sample locations are in, in Whole Foods, you know, what departments had samples. So I'd, I'd go and find all the samples I could eat there. So I've got about six months of abstinence from no free foods. I decided I can't have the, um, the things they give you on the airplane because I paid for the fare for that airplane. So I, that wasn't free food. And then most recently, in the last couple of months here, I've added uh, one, two, three, doing steps one, two, and three before I eat. And this has been helpful. I, I haven't lost a huge amount of weight yet, but I, I feel really good about it. And the idea is this. The idea is to take steps one, two, and three just before I'm going to have a meal or have a snack or even when I'm thinking about having food. If I'm thinking about maybe I should have a snack right now. When that thought comes into my mind, I try to work steps one, two, and three. And I could do it by just actually reading the steps. And, and the, the, the way that I, like, I would like to do it most often is to say something like this to myself now. This is saying something like, Frank, if you've admitted that you're powerless over food, you have no business deciding when, how much, and what to eat. God, would you please help me eat an abstinent meal or an abstinent snack, whatever it is like that. So it's doing steps one, two, and three, asking it for God's help. And the other thing is I, what I do is I, I then text to my sponsor one, two, three. And, and that's important because otherwise I can say, okay, one, two, three, and then just go ahead and eat. Ma making that text to my sponsor slows me down where I have to pull my phone out, type one, two, three, send, and then I can go ahead and have the snack or have the meal or whatever I'm going to do. And I've done that pretty reliably now for the last couple of months. And it's, it's been working to the, ex, to the extent where sometimes where I'm thinking about having a snack and I do one, two, three, and I don't have the snack. Or I'm thinking about having, you know, I'm sitting down to a meal with my family and they're passing the, the things around. I do one, two, three, and I put a much smaller quantity on my plate from the dishes that are being passed around. So the quantities are, are being more moderate now from doing one, two, three. And then one of my sponsees, I've convinced him to try it, and he's gotten benefit out of it. So I used, to, I used to text it to my sponsor, but now I text my one, two, three to my sponsee, and now he texts one, two, three to me. So we, we trade two or three one, two, threes, or four one, two, threes back and forth each day. 
So that's been helpful too. So that's, that's what my food, my food plan is now. Now I'm going to tell you some things about me that I don't normally say in, in meetings because it's kind of going against the OA dogma. But um, I don't have any red light foods. You know, I was just a quantity eater is what I was. Before OA, in fact, I avoided sweets and things like that because I knew that they had higher calorie counts than the meat and potatoes. So I, I went for the meat and potatoes to, because I could eat more of that without gaining as much weight. Whereas if I had the equivalent weight of sweets, I would gain more weight because it had more calories. Now, I have to admit that during my relapse and recovery, I did binge on sweets. I, I can get binge on anything. I can binge on meat and potatoes, you know, basically. So I binge on all those things. but. And there are certain foods that I don't keep in the house, partly because my wife also doesn't want to keep them in the house. But I, I don't keep it in the house because I don't want to be tempted by it. But I can, if I'm out someplace that has this item, I can have it. It's a controlled quantity. It's a reasonable quantity. And I don't go back for seconds. And um, so I don't have red light foods. The other thing I do that's not usually recommended is that I weigh myself every day. And for me, it's kind of a backup to see if my calorie counting or my moderate mealing are really being moderate meals or not. Because it, you know, if I'm not make, being moderate meals, then the weight's gonna inch up. Now the thing is, I can tell you this, from many years now, 12 years of weighing myself every day basically, the day-to-day -day variation is at least one or two or three pounds, four pounds, it can be, it can be a large amount because there's different amount of water retention, different amount of bowel contents. You know, if I haven't gone to the bathroom for a day or a half a day, there'll be more weight there. Or if I just had big meals yesterday and it's still working its way through my bowel. So there can be a, uh, there can be a, a lot of noise in this signal. So I kind of treat this as a physicist. I have a signal, which is my underlying weight, and then there's noise on it. So I kind of ignore the noise and just try to pay attention to the long-term trend. If the long-term trend is up, oh, maybe I should tighten up my food a little bit. If the long-term trend is down, great. That's the way I want it to go. So unfortunately, my long-term trend has been pretty horizontal recently, so maybe I should uh, pray some more. So those are the two things that I, that I don't normally talk about at a meeting level. Okay, so like I said, I, um, I'm really trying to work the spiritual program here today because that's where the recovery comes from. You know, I'll say this when I go through the steps too, but I'm gonna repeat it now. The, the 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It doesn't mean that I get to be abstinent and lose weight as a result of the steps. The only thing I get from working the steps is a spiritual awakening. And it's the spiritual awakening that allows me to be abstinent, that allows me to, to not binge, that allows me to lose weight and get all the other benefits that I get from this program. They all come from that spiritual awakening. So that is the only thing that will get me, me um, abstinent is that spiritual awakening. You know, there's, there's a lot of debate in OA. Can you work the steps while you're still be eating or do you need to be abstinent before you can work the steps? My opinion is work the steps because if you're, if you're hoping that you're gonna just by accident get spiritually awakened and be abstinent and then you can work the steps, you know, you're, you're, you're putting it backwards. You're assuming that you're gonna get the result of that 12th step of having worked all 12 steps and being abstinent before you actually work the steps and be abstinent. Now, if you are eating while you're working the steps and you get to 12 and you're still not abstinent, work them again. And, and if you do get abstinent, work them again also. You know, if you get abstinent as a result of working the steps, work the steps again once you're abstinent. Now, I, you know, I, I preach this, I'm a great preacher. I don't follow it as well because in my 
38 years, I've only worked the 12 steps four times, so I'm, I'm not good at following my own advice. But um, so that's what I say about the 12 step and that it's spiritual. It is, it, it, is, it is a spiritual program. It isn't anything else. That's all that it is, a spiritual program. And it's the spirituality that gives you all the other benefits. So, um, so the way that I work the spiritual program is I pray and meditate. That's part of it. You know, I try to be of service in all the other parts too, but praying meditation is the is the big part of it. And the um, I don't I don't do long prayers very well, so I like short prayers. And my favorite short prayer is more God, less Frank, because that's what I need: more of God's grace, more of God's help in my life, less of Frank's selfishness and self-centeredness. And that's what Frank is defined by: as selfishness and self-centeredness. So another short prayer is trust and relax. If I can trust in the higher power, then I'll be able to relax because I won't have to do it myself. I can trust that, that God's going to make everything work out and I won't have to do it myself. Another slightly longer prayer, and I actually came up with this prayer uh, apparently on my own. Maybe I heard it from somebody else, but I was in a grocery line and it was moving very slowly and the other grocery lines were moving very quickly. And I get very impatient in situations like that. And so what I said to myself then was, God, thank you for the opportunity to practice my patience. Because I need lots of practice on patience. I don't do patience very well. So, um, and I can apply that to any character defect, you know, what, that's coming up. That, that's talking about patience there. Any, any character defect, whatever the character defect, take the opposite of that, and you can thank God for that opportunity to practice the opposite of that character defect. And another one is, I am not in charge, you know, especially when things aren't going the way I want them to be. Just saying, I am not in charge. Let, let God handle it because I can't handle it. Now, another one that, that I don't say as often, but, I, but I, I really, really like the idea of it, which is, God, please make my character defects glaringly obvious before I act on them. You know, they become glaring before I act on them. The, you know, the, um, the, 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 my character defects become obvious after I act on them, it's obvious to me, obvious to my wife, and obvious to everybody else around me. But I'd like them to be obvious to me before I act on them so that I can ask God to help me and let go of them. So that's another one of those. Now, you know, in the first time in the program, I never really got any kind of meditation practice going. I mean, I sometimes went to a meditation retreat. And um, how am I doing? Okay. I sometimes went to a meditation retreat or a meditation workshop or whatever. And I would try to meditate, you know, for a few days or a week or something like that. And it would peter away to nothing. It would be months and months and months before I would meditate again. So this time I've been trying to meditate more often. And one of the things I did was I went to a commercial meditation program, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. It's a, it's a secular program by John Kabat-Zinn, a doctor in Massachusetts. And it's basically... Buddhist meditation that's had all the, spirit, the Buddhist spirituality taken out of it. It's just the, the meditation practice itself. And they teach you a half a dozen different practices of how to meditate in that, in that class. And the thing that was different is I did all the homework. And the homework was to meditate every day. Now, I didn't keep up meditating every day after the class ended. But by about nine months after the class was over, I did start to do meditate every day. I actually got an app. And it records my meditation. And I've now got 7.7 years, 2,111 days of meditating every day. Now, my goal is to do about a half hour, a half hour of meditation a day. 
a, a number of those days that I'm talking about there were five minutes of meditation. So sometimes it's five minutes if that's all I have time for. But I try to squeeze it in, and I can always squeeze in the five minutes while I'm laying in bed at night before I fall asleep. So, um, and I record it in my, med- in my meditation app. So that, that's the meditation, and I and since then, I've also gone on and um, done some other classes that I won't get into. But I, but I, and you know, I, there are times when I do more than an hour of meditation in a given day in a given setting, but my average is more like a half hour is what I do. So, um, so now I want to talk about my, about my higher power. And I, I still call it a higher self. That's the kind of the word I use for it. But I've actually been doing a lot of research and reading, and, uh, and I'm actually writing a book about my new higher power. And the, you know, I've already mentioned that intuition is part of the higher power, and that's the intuitive thought that comes the other thing that I added to it is the attention mechanism of the brain, because the way that the higher power, the way that I see the higher power helping me, is by letting me pay less attention to food. If I can pay less attention to food, that will help me not to binge on food. That'll help me not to obsess about food. The two things I'm going to talk about in terms of step one: it's the obsession and the and the binging once you start to eat. So the attention mechanism is the way that the higher power helps me. Now. What, what this is all based on is the voice that's in your head, you know, the voice that tells you things. And, 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 and don't you think of it as yourself talking? That's who you are talking? That's what I think of. So I call the voice in the head the thinker. And, and that's, that's, that's what I use um, in my ideas here. So the thinker. And the problem is that we identify, I identify with that voice. I think I am the thinker. And so what I am thinking out loud in my head is something that's important because that's me talking, so I gotta I gotta pay attention to that. Now the thinker is great for doing things like science and technology and you know all the kinds of stuff that we do with our brains that's coming from the thinker, that's great, it's wonderful. But it's not good at living a happy life. That's the problem. And the reason is is that the thinker it's it's essentially the ego. It's the it's the selfish and self-centered part of me is that thinker, that voice. And I call it the problem solver because he's always trying to solve problems. Now, if you're a problem solver, then um, if you, then you're looking at everything and to see wh- how it's a problem. How's there a problem here? Where's a problem that I can solve? That leads to a negative critical attitude towards life because to a problem solver, to a hammer, everything's a nail. To a problem solver, everything is a problem. That's what leads to the negative critical attitude towards life because everything's a problem. I got to fix it. And if there's no nothing right now here, right right here and right now that I can criticize and tr- try to solve the problem of that right here and right now, I'll go off into the past and try to solve a problem. And when you try to solve a problem in the past, that's usually a resentment, is what I'm working on. Somebody who did something to me, and um, and you know I got to fix fix it and, and get back at them and whatever. Or I go off into the future and try to solve a problem of what might happen in the future, and that usually leads to fears. So resentments and fears come from the thinker trying to solve problems in the past and the future. My meditation teacher called that rehashing and rehearsing. I'm rehashing the past. You know, what should I have said to that person uh, back there when I when I was um, when they when they said that thing to me? How, what should I have said back to them? Or I'm rehearsing the future. What am I going to say to that person when I see them again? So the other thing that we're doing with the thinker there is we're having conversations with people who are not in the room. That that's what the thinker does. So a negative emotion is a problem for the thinker the, um, because the negative emotion is a problem. How am I going to make sure this doesn't happen again? 
You know, if my, my wife got mad at me and I got mad at her, how am I going to make sure that she doesn't get mad at me again? Positive emotions are a, a problem too. You know, because what if this thing goes away? What am I going to do if this, if this positive thing goes away that I'm, that I'm having? And so the, the thinker can turn a positive emotion into a negative emotion by worrying about having fear about what will happen if this goes away. So the, the bottom line is the thinker increases suffering. And that suffering, that increased suffering that we have is what leads me to, to eat to try to solve that problem. And I believe that spirituality and meditation can all help me to decrease identification with the thinker so that I can be aware that I am not the thinker. You know, I won't identify that I am the thinker. And that's what I think the spiritual awakening is, and that's what leads to, to the thing. So I'm not going to say anything more about my, my theory, but that's my theory of my higher power. Now, like I said, I worked the 12 steps uh, four different times in, this, in these 38 years, and I've always worked it out of the big book. Back in 1980, when I first worked the steps, we didn't have anything else. There was only the AA literature plus OA pamphlets is all we had. And then every time since then, I've worked it out of the big book. And I, um, about three years ago, I started attending an OAPP big book study meeting. It's PP stands for primary purpose. OA primary purpose big book study meeting. And what we have is we have a guide that was published by the primary purpose group of Dallas. It's the AA primary purpose group. And it's got a question in this guide for every, every sentence in the big book. So you, somebody reads the question, and then you read a sentence out of the big book, and that's the answer to that question. And the great thing about this guide is that it also has lots of little comments and notes here and there. It talks about the history of, of AA and you know, the, the Oxford group and, and all the early players, Ebby and, and Roland and all those people. So I've, I've, I've fallen in love with the big book all over again in the last three years from going to that OA primary purpose big book study meeting. And I think I went through the big book two and a half times there. And we only do from the beginning of the title page, you know, through all the four words, doctor's opinion and up to page 164 and Dr. Bob's story. And then we go back to the beginning and do it over and over again. And then about a year and a half ago, I actually worked the 12 steps with an OAPP sponsor. And you'll be hearing more about that tomorrow when I go through the steps. Now, so I've always been a big book thumper from the beginning. And now I'm even more of a big book thumper after going to um, the OA Primary Purpose. And I'll, I'll end here with, with my favorite sayings. I love sayings. I've got spreadsheets of hundreds of different sayings that I've collected. But I'm just giving you my favorites here. My favorite saying about forgiveness is that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. And by the way, these sayings will be in the 22 pages that I sent to you, so you don't have to write these down. I got all these sayings listed there. So forgiveness is giving up all hope of the better past. Compulsive overeating is a disease that tells me I don't have a disease. You know, the thing about any addiction, both in AA and OA or whatever, it has to be self-diagnosed. I have to be the one that admits that I'm a compulsive reader. Somebody else telling me that I'm a compulsive reader or an alcoholic, that, you know, I blow it off. It, it only, it only, it's only effective if I admit that I'm a compulsive reader. And the disease tries to te teach me that, no, I'm not, you're not really a compulsive reader. You can binge right now. You, you can stop tomorrow. You know, you can stop overeating tomorrow. So that's the disease talking to you. The disease tells me if a little bit is good, then a whole lot is better. In other words, it's a disease of more. That's what my particular brand, brand of compulsive reading is, is the disease of more. The compulsive eater will eat over anything, everything, or nothing. Literally any of those things. I can eat when I'm happy, I can eat when I'm sad, or I can eat because I'm bored. And surrender doesn't mean you have, 
I'm sorry, surrender means you don't have to argue with reality anymore. You know, I, I get into pain when I'm arguing with reality, and I think I have another saying about that, but you know, the pain comes from trying to argue with reality. The other thing is that surrender means moving over to the winning side. Surrender is really, really important. I mean, that's essentially the first step there, admitting that I'm powerless over food. That's the surrender that you need to work. Another thing is that thinking is not one of the tools of the program. You know, look at the tools pamphlet. There's no thinking in that tools pamphlet. And in terms of tools, I use weapons, not tools. That, that's especially before the program. Now, I'm addicted to being right, but being right just means that I agree with myself. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean anything more than that. It just means I agree with myself. Oh, here's the thing. Pain, pain does not come from surrender or acceptance. It comes from the resistance. The resisting of what's going on here, that's where I get pain from because I'm resisting what's going on. If I could surrender and accept it, then I, it would be fine. And again, acceptance is not arguing with reality. Also, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I mean, the egomaniac is the selfish and self-centered guy who wants to arrange everything. And then I also feel like I'm a piece of shit. And, you know, I, I used to write down on the pads that go around uh, for your phone number, if they have a comment section there, I used to write one day at a time. But for the last 10 years, I've been writing one moment at a time. Because one day at a time is entirely too long. There's nothing I can do about breakfast or lunch or, at, or anything like that. Or if it was early in the day, there's nothing I can do about tonight. If I was going to have a snack tonight, which I won't, there's nothing I can do about it tonight. I can only do what's here one moment at a time. So it has to be one moment at a time, not one day at a time. I can't outsmart the disease. It's using the same brain that I'm using. You know, I can't, I'm not smarter than the disease because it's got the same brain that I've got. And resentment is taking poison and hoping it kills the other person. An addict alone in his head is in a bad neighborhood. That's why we need a higher power because that'll, that can go with us in our head. And finally, this is a quote from Mark Twain, not from uh, the program, but I really like it, which is that I've been through a lot of things in my life some of them have actually happened. So thanks for letting me share.